Authors on the Air, presented by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, with this week's guest host, Donna Dennis Wilberg, and her special author guest, Michelle Dreyer. Michelle, welcome. So nice to see you. Let's talk a little bit about your writing history. How did you go from being a journalist to, to novel writing? Oh, my. Well, when I started my first big job at San Jose Mercury News, it was mm, years ago, and almost everybody had <coughs> a partial novel in their desk drawer, along with a bottle of booze in some cases in the newsroom. <laughs> and everybody, literally, one of the cops reporters did, yeah. Mm, um, but everybody wanted to write a novel. And so I thought, well, I want to write a novel. And at one point, a whole group of us in the newsroom, I don't know if anybody remembers a, um, a fake writer's name named Penelope Ash, who wrote a book called Naked Came the Stranger. And it was actually the editorial department of New Newsday Magazine out on Long Island, who each wrote a chapter. And we tried to do that. We were nearly, not nearly successful, but I thought, well, okay, I want to write a novel. And then I put that whole idea aside for, I would say a good 50 years, but in the back of my mind, I always wanted to write a novel. Why vampires? I started out writing mysteries, and my first, actually two mysteries that I wrote were based on a newspaper editor. Gee, figured that one out. And they were, I really liked them. Uh, one of them, uh, the first one called Editor for Death, got a riveting and much recommended review from the Midwest Book Review. And then when I was going, I was going somewhere with my son-in-law and he said, why are you writing mysteries? And I said, well, because I really like mysteries. He said, go to a bookstore and look at the size of the mystery section and look at the size of the vampire section and then say, you can't write a vampire book. And I thought, it's not so true anymore, but, you know, 10, 12 years ago. And finally, I thought, well, I should probably read a vampire book before I try and write one. So I read a couple. I won't mention any names, but some of the bestsellers. And I liked them very much. But at the end of the day, I thought, you know, these are really pretty much romances. There's always a romance of some sort in a vampire novel. So I thought, well, I could probably write that. So I did some research into vampires and picked out a few things that I might like, but I did not want my vampires to be the same as everybody else's. And this was right around the time that Twilight came out. So there was a lot of conversation and a lot of interest in young vampires. And I thought, no, I'm not very good at writing that age character. So mine are grown up. They're all, they're all in their 30s. Some of them close to 500 years old rather than 30 years old. But it was just a kind of a fluky thing that I thought, if I, I should be able to write a romance. I've written two mysteries. They're pretty well received, and I should be able to write a romance. So that's how the vampires came about. Well, let's talk about Snap, you know, how you came to name it Snap and the Kanduskis. Where did all that come from? A lot of it just in my fevered brain, I think. But Snap actually came from my daughter. I was writing, I had started a vampire love story um, about a group of vampires who owned a tremendous amount of stuff in Hollywood, including some film studios. And one of their members of the vampire family, Penelope, was a film star. And my daughter said, you know, why don't you call it Snap? Because I went through uh, Us and People and FYI and you know, all the other sort of news magazines. And I said, Snap, what is it? She said, you know, like an old-fashioned camera. It goes Snap, like photo plan. I went, oh, yes, yeah, Snap, okay. So here was the business that they were in now in the 20 and 21st century. 
which is not what they'd started out to be, obviously. And I thought, well, we'll put them in L.A. And my daughter said, you, you can be a star. They all ride around in limos with darkened windows. They all wear sunglasses. None of them come out in a day. They could all be vampires <laughs> for what we know. And I'm like, yeah, they probably could. So bang, the Kandemskis, which was a 500-year-old Hungarian vampire family, started out in L.A. as SNAP. And, of course, it became wildly successful. It, it started, the original magazine started about 1915, maybe, just as movies were starting out. And then they branched out and they have a nightly TV show and a weekly magazine that shows in, like, I've forgotten now, but it's probably 25 or 30 countries. They have a German edition. They have an English edition. They have a Hungarian edition, obviously. They have a French edition. Um, they have a Portuguese edition because a huge following in Brazil. So it, it, this is international celebrity gossip behemoth that has taken over the industry for gossip and makes a lot of money for, for the Kandinsky's in the process. So talk a little bit about, you know, your, the characters and, and how you came up with them. And I, I thought about it a lot. Of course, I talked to several people and everybody said, well, you know, vampires always kill people, vampires. And I thought, you know, I don't really want to write. I want this to be more of a romance. I don't want it to be particularly vicious. I mean, clearly they have to eat and they clearly don't have the um, intestinal ability to digest food like we do. But isn't there something else we could do? And I stumbled across a few articles on people who actually donate vampire blood and people who drink blood. And I thought, okay, well, they can, they've got all the money in, you know, more than Midas. They can certainly afford to buy blood if they need that. So they wean themselves off of killing and actually live off of primarily, don't, well, donated and purchased blood from a lot of their uh, employees. Uh, but they also have one of the large companies that they own, they own com different companies all over the world. One of them is a huge beef ranching uh, facility in Argentina. So they actually do drink some bull's blood. But what bull's blood is a Hungarian Merlot, but what they drink is not the Hungarian Merlot, it's bull's blood that they get from their ranches in, in Argentina. So they, they've evolved because they had so much money from the beginning, they were in trade to begin with, and they traded up and down the rivers in, in Europe. And because they had so much money, they moved into the sort of upper class, not nobility by any means, although it is owned by Baron Kandinsky, except he stole the name from his father-in-law. But they're not nobility, they're just incredibly wealthy uh, Europeans who are now 500 years old. So they were there when Mozart was playing music. They were there when Peter Paul Rubens was painting. They were there when all of this, this huge um, Rococo and uh, neo-Gothic and, you know, all of the, and the romantic era, all of those things, all the red, well, a little after the Renaissance, but all of those were brand new when they were coming up. And so they took on the trappings of being a very well-educated, wealthy Eastern European family. You know what I like too, Michelle, is is you have a way of weaving history and current events into your novels. You've got 11 of them, right? How do you pick and choose what you're going to be aiming for as far as world events when you start a novel? 
what I usually start with is something that is in the, I've got an idea, because I've got, I have an idea where the novel's going. I don't plot it out, but I do know what I'm looking for as the, as the um, both end of that novel and the bridge to the next one in the series is some kind of event that will hold the, the interest of the vampires, but hold the interest of the readers as well. And now I've got them living in Kiev, which is, of course, at the heart of a major conflict. So that gives me a lot of different ways to go with, with the story ideas, with plot ideas. But I choose to try and put things into context. And I think part of that's probably my journalism training. I don't try and find, even in my mysteries, I don't try and find the killer. I found out mm -hmm. why the killer killed. I found out, find out why the uh, Kandinsky's do what they do. And in order to do that, I think it has to go into some sort of a context. And I usually use a history for that, uh, either an event or a person or uh, a movement. Um, in some of the earlier Kandinsky books, I have some of the characters talking about running across it pictures of the two Kandinsky men, one of them is Jean-Louis and the other one is Nick, and they found pictures of them, oils, paintings, in the attic, and they're dressed in wigs and satin breeches. Well, of course, to the two women's 20, 20 and 21st century eyes, it's howlingly funny, but I put that in as a way to ground where those vampires came from. You started out with how many vampires? I started, I started out with basically one, a farmer basically in the Carpathian Mountains, just on the border. It's somewhat, it's actually on the border of Hungary and Romania. And he gets attacked out of the blue in the middle of a uh, pandemic for, uh, I mean, middle of a plague pandemic. And this person attacks him in the woods. Turns out that that's an old vampire who's been living in that area for about a thousand years and is still doing the you know, rip their throats out, kill them and all of that. So then his, he's the one, his name is Stefan and he's the one who's going to become the Baron. So he ends up being turned into a vampire and taken back to the compound where this old guy lives. And that's, it's just disgusting. Everybody, all the women are sex slaves. You know, they're killing people. They're dragging their bodies in They're doing every bad vampire thing you can think of. Like Hollywood. Yeah, exactly. Very much. Very much. Yeah. I'm just kidding. Go ahead. Yeah. But Stephanie goes sort of on a walkabout and comes across this manor where everybody's dead because they've all dead, died of the plague. Well, he's immune to the plague. Vampires don't get sick like that. Mm -hmm. you know, they, don't, they don't have the ability to synthesize our, our viruses and our bacteria. So he moves into the manor house and finds that the guy was actually a, um, a merchant trading up and down primarily the Danube River. So he moves in, sort of takes over learning slowly about how this person's um, empire starts. And in the meantime, his, he, he has been asked to host the Baron's daughter to get her out of Budapest where the plague is headed. So she gets sent to the countryside, meets Stefan, they fall in love, he finally, finally, finally tells her one night in the garden, uh, I'm a vampire and I would love to have you, you know, be with me. So that's what, and that's Penelope. And those two started it. And then in the next book, which is two of the back ones, one of them is Plague, a Love Story. And the second one is Danube, a Tale of Murder. They find this young man named Jean-Louis and they hire him basically to manage their business. 
well, they don't want to lose him. So after about 20 years or so, they decide to change him and they change him against his will. And so the, the three of them, uh, the Stefan Kandinsky, Penelope Kandinsky, and Jean-Louis, who takes the name Kandinsky, all are the original vampires in this family. And as the time evolves, they get a lot more and a lot more. And eventually now the Kandinsky family is probably around 2,500 people worldwide that they've changed. They do not take, they do not change people much anymore. If you are a Kandinsky, you have to be a senior Kandinsky and you have to apply for an acolyte, which is your training, train, trainee. Uh, and you have an acolyte for a year and you are absolutely responsible for that person as they are learning how to become a vampire. And they, they do not take that lightly. They don't look for uh, recruits. They're not interested in recruits. They're doing perfectly fine. Uh, and of course they're incredibly wealthy because they don't have children, so there's nothing to pass on. So they have 500 years of European wealth behind them to uh, enable this lush, 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 lush uh, lifestyle. They shop for clothes in Milan and Paris. Oh, they shop for shoes in England. They, you know, they they own private jets. They own limos. So it's just this really ridiculously wealthy lifestyle that they've developed. And writing typical mysteries, you can kill off characters. How do you kill off your vampires if they're already dead? They have had for the first four, five books. I've forgotten how many. They have an an ongoing battle with another vampire clan. And those are called the Hussars. And with their fights basically turn into things like killing each other with silver, uh, staking somebody to the ground, because there are, well, there are ways to kill vampires. But they don't, they realize that they just want to get rid of the Kandinsky's. The Kandinsky's, I mean, the Hussars, the Hussars are living old style. They're still living in the woods. They're living in a, in a thrown up ramshackle compound they still go out and hunt at night they they work with werewolves and things like that and finally the Kandinsky's decide to have somewhat of an all-out war with them and what they finally do and i won't give all of it away but in about book five i believe it is they actually arrest the head of the hussars and they put him up for trial and they bring him in on a regular like a regular courtroom they built it in their castle in hungary the regular courtroom and there's a judge from France and a judge from Germany and a judge from the U.S. I think one, I forgot what it's here for, one in England. And the judges are the ones that decide whether this vampire has not acted in the best interests of the full community. And they decide he hasn't. So what they do is take him out at the end and stake him out and watch him dissolve into dust. What is your favorite part about writing them? Uh, well, it's kind of like I saw... Um, Janet Ivanovich once, and she talked about she'd love to get up in the morning and go play with her imaginary friends. And I thought, <laughs> that's true. I like that part. And of course, you know, even though I write genre fiction, pretty much all I write is genre fiction, writing true fiction is very different from what I use in my mysteries, because most of the mysteries have at least a basis of factual information to them, particularly the newspaper ones. Um, those all have a, a murder in them, which my reporters covered. It's, it's not usually the, the major uh, mystery of the book, but they all have a murder in them. So I'm pretty, I have to stay pretty true to 
form there and figure and do it, you know, for what. So I do a lot of research into what actually happened in that. Mm -hmm. But when I started writing these fantasies, man, they're absolutely made up. Absolutely made up. <laughs> so I thought, oh, people ask me, well, do, what do, you, do your vampires eat meat? Or, you know, where I have no idea. I've actually never met a vampire. Well, let me put to my knowledge, I have never <laughs> met. So asking, you know, esoteric vampire questions, I don't think I'm going to be able to answer them because I made it all up. And that part I really like because there's nothing you, you want to write it so that it hangs together well enough so that a reader can follow it and get intrigued by the characters, get intrigued by the plot, get intrigued by the, the story itself. But you can put in there anything you want as long as like, a reader yeah. will be able to eat it, you know. And that's like a wearing real, Jimmy Two shoes. Yep, I, wear, <laughs> I don't. I don't wear Jimmy Two's. No, nor do I wear Louboutin or anything else like that. Yeah, uh, but I can sit down at the computer and do a lot of research into expensive shoes. You know, man, and that's that's another thing. One of the one of the things I try and talk about is the great card catalog in the sky, otherwise known as Google. You can find out amazing information. By just googling it, but there are there are other search engines as well. But you know, Google is the one you. Okay, well, I wonder. Uh, I, for instance, this morning I was trying to write about arson in France, so I googled French word for arson. Turns out it's criminal 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 fire criminal um, incendiary. I think is the term for it. But you know, they're like children. I, I, you have a favorite child in your. In your right. <laughs> Oh, I don't have it. Um, <laughs> I love all my children. Exactly the same. Everybody's the same, right? Um, yes and no. I I really like the first snapbook because everything was brand new. Yeah. Brand new. But this one I really like. This is the seventh book. This is when the when the vampires, uh, and by this time one of the women is now a vampire one of them was snap women uh when they when they go to st petersburg russia to open up a new brand new um bureau there for russia for russian speaking because as they point out that russia the eastern part of europe particularly in the old, old russian is absolutely awash in illicit money all of which needs to be laundered all of which needs to be you know uh so what they what they've decided to do they're somewhat amoral when it comes to money they're perfectly willing to dip their net into this revenue stream in in russia and it was i made so much stuff up there it was amazing uh you know i have them spending it's called white nights because during the summertime that's what russians call the daylight hours you know because they're they're far enough north that some in some places it goes it doesn't even get dark so the white nights is when they spend their time in a dhaka dasha dhaka i don't know how to pronounce that um dasha i guess out in the forest in Russia, you know, interviewing these people. And in the meantime, the sole remaining member of the Hussars shows up. So they have a huge firefight at the airport, and there's all kinds of. I love writing scenes where they're doing um, firefights. You know, I, I go in mm -hmm. and I, I'm probably going to get arrested for this in some way, but I go in and I look up <laughs> hardware, and I look up night vision goggles, and I look up all this stuff, you know, to throw it in. Why not? Why not? What's next? Are you going to write another one? Do you plan on adding a 12? I do. I'm planning on writing another one, yeah. Uh, this one is going to... One of the things that, that snapped the 
organization and certainly the uh, media part of it discovered early was the power of misinformation and disinformation. And Maxie is absolutely determined that they're not going to use any of that in the magazines, but they still know how to do it. And so this next book, they're going to be moving back to LA trying to figure out how they can stop some disinformation campaigns in the media. So I'm starting to gather information on uh, AI and uh, that Snapchat or what, whatever the chat is, you know, all the, all the, yeah, yeah, yeah. And all of those that are coming up. And so I need to know about how those work because some of those are the things that the Kandinsky, the Snap Empire will use to to take away the or to eliminate the disinformation so yeah i do i do have another one and i'm not quite sure who's going to be the romantic interest in this next one the both both the kandinsky men and the two um la women are now married to each other and they're all vampires so i don't have that kind of sexual tension anymore so i've got to find another way to, to build that tension in is there anything that you'd like to impart on the a listening audience today that we may not know? I'm going to keep writing. I've got 18 books out now, 11 of which are the Kandinsky Vampire Chronicles, and I've got at least one more planned there. Uh, I'm in the middle of writing the third book in the Stained Glass Mysteries, which is called Resurrection of, of, Ro Resurrection of the Roses. Uh, I've got a fourth book planned for the uh, Amy Hobbs newspaper series. That one's going to take them she and her love interest in that one are going to get married and go to Italy on their honeymoon to discover an amazing murder, murder for hire. Um, and I've got a couple of ideas for some standalones as well. I've got one standalone I wrote now called Ashes of Memories. And that is a psychological uh, sort of medical thriller. Uh, I sat down one day and I thought, you know, why can't I just go down to the store and buy memory? I can buy memory for the computer. Why can't I buy memory for my brain? And I thought, what would happen if you could buy memory? And so I wrote this book about them developing them, whoever them is, some, some large pharma, developing a chip that they implant in your head, which gives you all this extra memory. And there is a um, slightly less than honest doctor who takes the chips out when people die, erases them, and resells them. Well, a couple of times he didn't erase them very well. And so the people who then in, inherit or got the chips implanted took on somebody else's memory. And one of them was a murderer. Ooh. So, you know, so I, I, I would love to come up with another thing like that. So, and I don't know where I come up with my ideas. Somebody asked me that the other day, <laughs> and I say, mostly I sit around and go, what if, what if, what if this, what if that? And I think if you can, you may never be able to answer that question, but if you can ask yourself that question, it creates the interest of trying to tell a story around it. You know, before I let you go, I want to uh, make sure that people are aware of how immersed you are in the writing community and some of the things that you do as far as groups. and. Well, I, I am involved primarily with a group called Sisters in Crime, which is a group started by Sarah Poretsky, uh, a little over 30 years ago now, to try and bring women mystery crime writers more into the <coughs> into the for <coughs> excuse me into the forefront with men. And I've been a Sisters in Crime member for I 12 years maybe I something like that. And I've been the president of the local chapter here in Sacramento. 
I'm currently the president of the NorCal chapter, which is all the northern San Francisco Bay Area counties. Uh, I'm also involved with California Writers Club, which is not mystery based. That's that's anybody who writes anything, and they're they're very interesting. Um, for a while, I was in a critique group with a, with a group of poets, which was really interesting because poets use language way differently than prose writers and fiction writers do. Um, and I, I really enjoyed that. I'm also involved with Bouchercon, which is the world's oldest and largest mystery community um, convention. I guess they call it a conference. I forgot. Now. And um, I was on the board for seven years. I'm back on the board again for a while. But I, well, I, like to, I like to be immersed because I want to pay people back. People have taught me how to write. People have given me background. People have um, allowed me to come in, my, in their homes with my books and tell stories to them. And I can't tell you how gratifying that is that somebody wants to hear my stories. I love it. I love it. So I thought, you know, I need to pay back somehow. So I always volunteer to do things like either beta read somebody's first manuscript or work with, with aspiring authors. And uh, I also teach. I teach basic writing skills. I teach plotting and pacing and characters and, and uh, dialogue and uh, story arc, things like that. One of them, one of my recent students just won a Silver Falcon Award at Killer Nashville for his first book, which really made me feel gratified because uh, when he first sat down, he'd written a book and he published it. And I bought it and I went through it and I said, hmm. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to limit all the adjectives and all the adverbs. And he said, oh, my God, no, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. I said, get rid of all the description. If it doesn't speak to the plot, lose it. And he went, ah. So it, it, was, it was a little bit of an effort to get him to understand that. But he writes really well, really well. So, wow. so that, that part I really like. I like working. I guess I kind of always – I never thought of myself as a teacher – but I guess I do like working with people like that. Well, not only are you a prolific and amazing author, but you're just a wonderful human being. I'm so, so happy to have you here today, Michelle. And thank you so much for joining us on Authors on the Air. It's been great well, thank talking you very to much. you. I always love talking to you. Authors on the Air is a copyrighted production of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. All rights reserved. Copyright 2023.